thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This just in, Paramount Pictures has just announced the long-awaited Top Gun sequel, Top Gun Maverick, is delayed for the fourth time, from Thanksgiving 2021, now until Memorial Day 2022. Oh, come on, Paramount, are you serious? You're killing us here. Well, never mind that. The show must go on, as they say, and it does this week, with U.S. Marine Corps Reserve Major Travis Denny who joins us to describe the assault support helicopter that debuted with the U.S. Army during the Vietnam conflict and is still being made for and flown by the U.S. Marines over a half century later. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast episode 119, and that's right, this week we're talking all about the Bell AH-1 Cobra gunship. Get some. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and we will get to the AH-1 Cobra with Jay Hoon, as he's known, in just a few minutes. But first... Man, it's good to be back. I hope you're all doing well and having a good summer up here in the North Hemisphere or winter, I guess, for those of you down South. I hope you enjoyed our simulcast of our new sister podcast, The Merge, last month. That was a lot of fun and it's not done yet. You can find episodes five and six over on The Merge itself. Just search for it on your favorite podcast player and you can hear the conclusion of our first season where we explored that 2008 fatal midair collision in Fallon. For those of you who are wondering, again, go search for The Merge. It's a long-form storytelling of a mishap where you get to hear from a couple folks involved, the flight lead of the wingman who was unfortunately killed, and then again, coming up in episodes five and six, a couple observers who were elsewhere in the flight, and then from the deceased's widow. So really touching series. I really appreciate as well all the feedback. People just have been writing in, you know, leaving emails or voice messages saying they enjoy it. And that's good because we put a lot of work into it. Actually spent a bit of money on it as well. And we're still trying to figure out how to maybe recoup some of that. But maybe on subsequent seasons, we can have a better plan. But we wanted to give it a try and seems like it's working pretty well. Season two, not sure yet, probably a few months away. So stay tuned. Anyway, on that note, at the end of this episode, we'll talk about a new show, another new show we're working on. That actually will debut with episode one next week. We'll talk about that after our episode here today. And I guess the real big news on everyone's mind is everything going on in Afghanistan. And I've had many people reach out via email and social media and just ask my opinion, as well as folks mentioning the serendipity of having the episode on the C-17 recently with such dramatic images coming out of Kabul of the folks there clinging onto the side of the thing for uh, desperation. 
look, I'm no great order or particularly well-informed on everything. Here's what I know. I know it's awful what's happening. I know we have a seeming void of leadership. We also have a bunch of folks that were blown up the other day, which is just terrible. And so I'm pissed, frankly. I feel like we really did throw away 20 years and over 2,300 people and $2 trillion just to hand it back to the Taliban and a bunch of equipment, by the way, that we're leaving. And so, I don't know. I know you don't tune in here to listen to me rant. It's not strictly military aviation, although the C-17s are involved. And that's a good thing. I did speak to our guest, Voodoo. She said the folks are out there doing good work. And for those who have asked, well, what do you do when they swarm your airplane and like that? And I've written them back and said, you accomplish the mission. And if the mission is to get the folks that you need to get on board and take off and get them out of there, well, that's what you got to do, even if it's a little bit disturbing uh, what's happening just outside your airplane. So anyway, uh, we'll keep watching that, but obviously uh, really broken up about the 12 Marines. And I think it was one Navy guy that got blown up. I'm sure there's going to be more. And I don't doubt that we'll be back in some capacity, probably dropping bombs and trying to figure out uh, what's going to happen in that place. But yeah, it's a mess and I'm not a real big fan. Anyway, on to happier news. Let's take some listener questions. I guess that's pretty much all the announcements for today. We'll start with an email from Lucas Graham, who says he was glad to listen to the C-17 episode. Speaking of that, I feel the U.S. Air Force's airlift capability is often overlooked, despite being such a vital part of our force. So I was glad to see them get some time in the spotlight. And so his question goes on, but I'll just address that real quick, Lucas. You know, you're absolutely right. Hollywood always talks about the sexy stuff, right? The fighter pilots and volleyball and whatever else. I don't know. I guess I'm thinking of Top Gun here, but very rarely do the unsung heroes like the cargo folks and surveillance and a bunch of others get the spotlight. But we try here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So I appreciate you acknowledging that. Anyway, Lucas' question is, can a HARM, high-speed anti-radiation missile, lock onto any radar source, parentheses, Doppler, ship radar, ASR, or just SAM radars? Well, so Lucas, yes is the short answer. The longer answer is we have a bunch of parameters built into the HARM to look for, for certain threat missiles, but we can give it the parameters of any other system to look for. For example, you can give it the pulse repetition frequency of the radar you want. You can put a bunch of other stuff in there. And as long as you know something about the threat emitter or really any emitter that you want it to go after, you just have to tell it what to look for. We do that quite often. In fact, more often than not, we will tell it something very specific to look for based on what Intel has provided to us, whether that is a Doppler radar of some sort or a radar on a ship, which is very common, or even theoretically, I guess, an ASR, I guess that's the surveillance radar, right, for uh, an approach to an airfield. I don't remember a lot of it anyway, but I'm sure the military wouldn't want me to give away a lot of the capability. But yes, you can put in specific things for the harm to look for, and it will do just that. All right, next, let's take a phone call. Hey, Jello, this is Greg Moorhead from Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. I just listened to the episode about the Tiger Cruise with you and your brothers. By far the best, most touching episode I've ever heard you do. I mean, I was laughing, smiling, and crying right there with you. I lost a brother back in 1988, so I know how you feel. Man, hang in there, and anytime you or your family or your brother, you might be having a bad day and need a smile on your face, Listen to that. That's an incredible memory you will never forget. Take care, and um, I wish you and your family the best. God bless you guys, and thanks for what you do. 
Well, Greg, thanks for your call. I actually forwarded your call to my brother, Kai, who you also heard on the Tiger Cruise. And he wrote back a very touching note that uh, made his day and made him laugh and cry all at once in a minute long uh, voice message there. So yes, thank you. We do miss Rocky dearly. And for those of you who might be uh, jumping around in the podcast, here we are in uh, early September. I lost my two-year-older brother, Rocky, in June. And we had a recording with him from uh, before, obviously, of a Tiger Cruise that we replayed. And you can find that in our lineup. That's what Greg's referring to there. So yeah, Greg, we certainly miss Rocky. I think about him quite frequently, you know, 50 years of my life spent with always him there. And so every once in a while I'll say, oh, I need to call or text Rocky about something. And then I have to remind myself, you know, it's kind of like muscle memory now that I still just think that he's there and he's not. And so we are healing slowly as is his family. They're still struggling, of course, but at least I have the benefit of being in an environment where he was always somewhere else and they're in the home and he's not there, of course. That's painful, but we miss him. And I thought the Tiger Cruise episode was a good tribute to him. So thanks for acknowledging that. All right, next is another email. This is from Richard Rout, who says, I was in the Army. I was curious to know your opinion of drones and drone pilots. While deployed, I heard but never saw them and wondered what the Fighter Pilot Podcast felt about these planes and their pilots. Well, Richard, they're clearly second-class people and their mission doesn't matter. (laughs) Of course, that's not what I'm going to say. Every mission matters, as we talked about before with the C-17. It takes pilots and other trained professionals to fly them, even if they're not in the actual aircraft. It's still an important mission. They're out there doing good work. I have read the book Hunter Killer about some of the first use of drones in uh, some of the kinetic activity they were doing all over the place. I think of them as professionals, just like I do everyone else who wears the uniform. Clearly, some do it better than others, and that's true for any profession, I think. I personally have no qualms against them. I would be happy to have them on the show at some point. We just haven't gotten there yet because, as you alluded, the show is titled The Fighter Pilot Podcast, and it's slightly different, but we'll get to it, I bet, before long. All right, let's finish up then with a phone call. Hey, Vince, Jim Sackett here. I'm just calling to let you know just how much I enjoyed the um, A3 podcast. I'm a former whaler. I flew with... DQ-2 and Road to Spain is around 67 to 69 as a ECM operator in the back end. Flew many, many missions with Tom Maxwell. He's a great pilot and a real gentleman. And Rick Morgan is very, very knowledgeable. The only thing I wanted to mention was that he mentioned there was five of us in the back end. There's actually four. There's an eval, evaluator, who's an officer, and three of us enlisted folks. But other than that, I really enjoyed it and um, looking forward to um, listening to some more podcasts. All right, Jim. Well, thanks for your message. And yes, Tom was a character. In fact, we had him on a happy hour recently. And if you're not familiar with that, that is just a casual conversation we have typically lasts about an hour and we record it so you can see who's talking. It's not as structured as the interviews here on the regular show. And we air that on Patreon for our exclusive show supporters. That's a little extra perk that they get. Yeah. Tom came on, talked about his time flying A3s and then his wife jumped in at the end there and said hello. And it was really cute. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, Head on over to Patreon, search for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And I think that's at the, what is it, wingman level, which is about 10 bucks a month, which frankly, these days, that's barely a beer at the bar, you know? So it's not even an Uber ride anywhere. So yeah, come on over, check it out. Help support your favorite podcast at the same time. 
All right, and then for your corrections part, yes, I appreciate you pointing that out. A couple of others did as well via email. Look, on the show, we always say we want to be authentic, factual, and personal. So authentic people make mistakes, but we're going to come back and fix those, and you helped us do that. And personal, that just part of the uh, script I have for when I respond to folks on email or social media. If you ever write the show, you might find that I usually respond right away because that's how I like to be treated. All right. Well, that is it for all the fluff. Let's get to the meat, right? The main course here, it's on the AH1 Cobra. And we recorded this in a studio, but still my audio ends up a little messy. I don't know why. This seems to be the bane of my existence. And again, I really have respect for folks who can do this consistently and do it well. And here I was thinking uh, I had it suitcased. Anyway, no biggie. Jehoon sounds good. I sound a little less good, but I know you'll enjoy it. So let's get to the AH1 Cobra with Jehoon. All right, Jehoon, I looked back through our email chain and you know how long we've been trying to get to this? Yeah, I think it was in the 50s back and forth, like (laughs) 50-something emails. Yeah. Well, also, we started back in April. I think your email to me was April 11th, 2020. Wow. Here we sit (laughs) on August 18th, 2021, so 16 months later. Oh, this is the anniversary of when I got winged, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah, 1995. Thanks. (laughs) That was my brother and his wife's anniversary, and he passed away a couple months ago. If you've been listening to the show, you might know about that. So a hard day for them, I'm sure. But sorry. Yeah. At any rate, Travis Denny, call sign Jehoon. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. So glad we're finally doing it. For sure. Well, and just to put a fine point on that. So we are both part of a group. It's like Fight Club. You're not supposed to talk about it. But I put a post out in that group one time. Hey, uh, looking for folks to come on the show. And your, I think, email subject was do attack helicopters count or something yep, like that? that was it, yep. <laughs> and that's yeah, the subject yeah. we've been using ever since. But yeah, man, we're going to talk about the AH-1. I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. I love the Cobra. Certainly, I've flown a lot of aircraft at this point in my career, and it's definitely the most fun I've ever had flying. So, Well, I've seen it at air shows. I've seen it fly over. I think I know a little about it, but not very much. You're going to help us. But first, let's learn about Jehoon. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? And what did you do in the military? Yeah, so from a small town in uh, Texas called Graham, Texas. It's really small. Most folks don't know where it's from. Uh, I went to Texas A&M University for my undergrad out of there. Went to Officer Canada School and then the basic school, as all Marines do, yep. out of there. Went to flight school and then uh, started in Corpus and then picked helicopters, uh, which is what I wanted. And yep. then uh, out of Whiting, was fortunate enough to be able to pick Cobra's West Coast, which is also you know what I wanted. And then I got to go fly the Whiskey there, the H1 Whiskey variant. Mm-hmm. With the gunfighters, so HMLA 369 gunfighters, did a deployment to Afghanistan with that. And then when I got back from Afghanistan, I transitioned over to the Zulu, which is the newest variant, as I'm sure listeners know. I flew that for a while, uh, about two years after I got back from Afghanistan. And during that time, I was fortunate enough to go through a lot of schools, uh, became a defensive air combat maneuvering instructor, which is, you know, kind of dogfighting for helicopters. Uh, I was weapons and tactics instructor, so I kind of I got to teach folks how to employ the aircraft to its best capabilities. So that, you know, I had a lot of fun doing that. Um, mm. Once I did that, I went to MARSOC, uh, Marine Special Operations Command on the East Coast. So I was a ground pounder for a little bit. I was an air officer there, so in charge of all the air for those guys. Incredible group of folks. Oh, sure. And then after that, I decided it was probably time to, uh, I did everything I wanted to do. So I went to be a flight school instructor for a little while and then made my transition out of the Marine Corps 
And now I'm living the civilian life and doing some reserve stuff on the side. Okay, yeah. So you're still technically a major, right, in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserves? Yep, still in the Reserves right. as a major. So we'll address you as that appropriately there. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, all right, so that's really awesome. Yeah, we'll talk about the variants because I want to learn as well about the four-bladed, right, is yep. the Zulu. Mm-hmm. And some call it the Viper, but you said before we rolled tape, we'll just call it the Cobra today to make it simple. Sure. Awesome. Uh, how many hours in the AH-1? So I had about equal time in the whiskey and the Zulu. So about between five and 600 in each of those. So about probably, I think it's like 550 in the whiskey and about 580 in the Z. Cool. So. And then you were, like you said, a WTI. So you do that, what, down at Yuma? Is that yeah. sort of a Marine Corps equivalent to Top Gun in a sense? Yeah, I would, as far as it being, you know, the top aviation kind of school that we have, that's how I would equate it to Top Gun. Mm-hmm. We always like to joke that Top Gun is actually a prereq for... Uh, for your fighter guys to come to WTI. So it's different from Top Gun in that it's kind of the whole, instead of just, you know, fighters and that kind of thing, it's the whole Marine Corps aviation aspect coming mm-hmm. together. It's about a two-month course and really stressful, but some of the most fun oh, flying I've ever done in my life. Okay. It, it was awesome. So short, sort of, like a Top Gun course, but combined sort of like the Air Force Weapons School. Yeah, it's the Marine Corps version, I think, of both of those. Yeah. Because, yeah, we're a little different service than both of those, so we got to do our own things. So. Sure. Well, of course. All right. Well, one of these days we need to have a, an episode on the differences between all those courses and syllabi. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be interesting to find some folks that maybe have been to more than one. I had a friend who was a Top Gun instructor and then went to instruct at the Air Force Weapons School. So Yeah, and there's Top Gun guys that gone to MOTS and WTI as well. So, yeah. All right. Well, getting back on task. And of course you talked about Afghanistan as well, which we can certainly go there if you want. Again, we're recording this in mid to late August, but it's going to hopefully air in early September. And I imagine I'll have some comments in the pre-interview segment on that, but I don't know about you just watching what's going on over there. It's just, it's heartbreaking for the people, but also such a waste. It's definitely tough, tough to think about and everything that we put into it. So. All right, well, let's stick with happier topics. So the AH-1 Cobra, what was it designed to do? And as I understand it, it wasn't initially a Marine aircraft. Yeah, so started with the Army, and it really gets its origins from Vietnam. As I'm sure folks know, in the Marine Corps, we employ it as um, dual use in today's tactics, right? So our squadrons are mixed where we have both Hueys and Cobras in the same squadron. So obviously there's a rivalry there. Uh, and the Huey guys always like to joke that, well, the Cobra was made from a Huey. So Huey was here first, right? So <laughs> back in the, the 60s, you know, Vietnam era, you had assault support aircraft. That's really Korea. But then military started using helicopters a lot more to move troops around and stuff like that. You know, they're having issues getting those assault support aircraft in there and decided they need some top cover with a, an attack version of the assault support. And that's where the Cobra came about. And they made it, I think, a little, you know, a little slimmer for some more survivability, less of a target. Just two pilots in there to help out those guys that are dropping off troops. Yeah. And that's kind of how it started. And so, yeah, derived from the UH-1 Iroquois, I guess. I never know how to pronounce that. Mm-hmm. But today in your squadron, a pilot is not flying both or is he or she? No, you're either a, a Cobra person yeah. or a Huey person. Okay. And different natops, different quals. Completely different. Yeah, okay. Gotcha. Completely different mindset, personality, everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, that must make for some fun times. A bunch of monk class, what is it, type A personalities? Yep. All right, so the Army didn't stay with it for very long, right? Used it until about 2000, I think I read. Marine Corps picked it up some point along the way. And yep. what's the bread and butter for the AH-1 today? Yeah, so, you know, the Marine Corps, I think, was interested in it because of the close air support capabilities that it can provide. The Army had a single engine, and to go over the water with this thing, we really like to have two engines, right? So yeah. 
That's when they came up with the Juliet model or the J model, which is the Sea Cobra. And then they went to the Tango, which is the, um, I think, the Super Sea Cobra. And then they got to the Whiskey, right? And the Zulu, obviously. And the Marine Corps really likes the Cobra because of the capabilities that it brings to the battlefield. Mm. It is incredibly nimble. I would argue the most maneuverable aircraft that exists in our uh, weaponry. It's really good at close air support. So down in the ground, close to the Marines, close to the troops, helping them out when they need it, you know, inserting people with the Huey. So it's really good for that kind of all-purpose ground pounder support fighter type aircraft. Because that's what the Marine Corps does, right? We had an episode on the MAGTAF. So you're bringing everything you need including some Navy folks, because Marines are all combatants. So sure. we'll bring you some of the corpsmen chaplains. and chaplains exactly, right. and get you there. But otherwise, you guys are self-sufficient. All right, so close support of the folks. I mean, yep. are they generally supporting the folks, or will they go out and do some interdiction on their own? Yeah, you can definitely do interdiction. Certainly in my experience when I w- was there, our primary bread and butter is close air support. Okay. Uh, but definitely aerial interdiction is one of our top medals. Mission essential task lists All right. is what that is, right? So, And that's a really fun mission to train to and do where it's, you know, two Cobras going out and just sneaking through the hills and blowing things up and then going back. So uh, we definitely do that as well. All right. So you already touched on some of the different variants. Let's see if we can get through this. And we don't need to go A through Z. And I don't know if there even was an A. Sure. But of course, you have the prototypes and some of those early variants. And then just over to you as far as if you want to go in big groups of them or I don't know, you already talked about the sea Cobra and a few others. So, yeah. So that's really the ones that I'm familiar with is kind of the Marine Corps versions. And they were certainly long gone by the time I got there. But, you know, when I was learning the whiskey, we still had instructors that had flown the J model and the T model. So they had dual engine. They were essentially the, you know, the army version and then put two engines on it so we can fly across the water with the J. And then the T is just like a more souped up version of that. It's got some better targeting systems and a better payload and things like that. But then, the leap up from that, what I would refer to as like the Cobra Classic, the whiskey, you know, mm-hmm. that's the one that I think everybody really thinks of, especially in modern times. You're talking about Iraq and Afghanistan. You're really thinking about the whiskey, which is the two-bladed Cobra. It's got two engines on it. It's got improved sighting system. So once you get to the whiskey, you've got night sights on it that can shoot a uh, tow, Hellfire, you know, AIM-9 rockets, all that good stuff. And it was really kind of the workhorse, I feel like, of Marine Corps close air support for a long time. So great aircraft. I'm a huge fan of it. You know, I would compare it to like a 1968 Camaro is what I would kind of think of the whiskey as. And then the next one up, which is the one we fly now is the Zulu. So, and I would think of that as your Tesla. That thing is, you know, the leap in technology from the whiskey to the Zulu is just incredible. And that one has four blades on it as opposed to two. It's got a fully articulated rotor head. So you could theoretically go inverted, you know, go upside down in it. And it's a lot more maneuverable and it carries a much bigger payload. The avionics in the front and the back are the same, whereas in the whiskey and other ones, you kind of had a gunner up front and a pilot in the back a little bit, even though they're both pilots. And then the Zulu, it's both the same. So you can do the same things in the front as you can in the back. So Zulu's great aircraft. I bet. It's awesome. What's the practical implication for you as a pilot of the four blades versus two? And again, I'm just a dumb jet pilot. So. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, there's a few differences. One of the sad things that you lose going from two blades to four is the sound. I thought you might say that. Yeah, (laughs) right. So you've got that wop-wop of the two-bladed Cobra that people know, Mm -hmm. and quite frankly, uh, can be an asset. A deterrent? Yeah, in a close air support situation. You you know, you hear those things coming and people are going to get out of town. But that's what's called an underslung rotor head. And the disadvantages of that are, think of it as maybe 
if you've ever like spun those spinny it's on a stick and you spin it and it flies up in the air oh yeah you know it's kind of like that but it's balanced on the stick so the blades can actually move up and down and when they move up and down if you don't have enough g-forces on those blades they can actually hit the mast and we call that mast bumping Hmm. if you're ever in a situation where like for example if you're low and you need to pop up to do a dive to get a rocket shot and you unload the rotor head and essentially go negative g's you can get mast bumping that will essentially depart your rotor from your helicopter, which you never want. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> Always bad, right? <laughs> wow. So it worked for what we needed it for, but the real advantage going to that fully articulated rotor head is you don't have that problem anymore. It makes it much more maneuverable because the four blades move independently if they need to. Wow. You got a lot more maneuverability in there. And then you can just carry a bigger payload, bigger aircraft, more avionics and that kind of stuff. So that's kind of the big differences between the two and the four. No, that's cool. But you give up the cool factor the with the <laughs> yeah yeah it's definitely a sad thing to go but yeah. I'll, I'll tell you when you fly to the z it's like okay that's you know i'll leave it behind in order to get this increase in capability yeah. just thinking uh back through some of the historical aircraft i've seen at least pictures of i guess the army used to fly them in the olive green drab color whatever yep. you guys only do the standard gray for all seems like navy marine corps aircraft these days these days for sure definitely all gray you know every once in a while you'll get one where we get the color you know, the kind of the flagship oh, sure. of the yeah. squadron. So sometimes you'll get artists, we'll have them come in and paint the birds oh, in, cool. a, in a motif. But yeah, typically it's gray. I think they used to have, you know, the block camouflage, not block as in like the digis, but block as in big chunks of brown and green and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But primarily gray is what we're looking at. Even when you guys deployed to Afghanistan, you just stuck with the... Yep. You know, having seen the aircraft, it's definitely, I think, the best camouflage you can have. How about the shark's mouth or whatever uh, on some of the old Cobras? Sure. Even on T-34s, they seem to have that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any squadrons still doing that? Yeah. You know, not that I know of okay. off the top of my head. I will say, though, in, you know, in Afghanistan, we had a gray shark's mouth on one of our birds. So it's definitely still out there. Uh, <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Well, so we talked about the U.S. as far as the Army and now the Marine Corps. The Army's been out of the business for a little while. There's some other U.S. stuff we'll come back to, but who else flies the AH-1 or did? Right now, I think you've got Taiwan flies Cobras. Iran also flies Cobras. Oh, really? They still have some left? Yeah. Who knows if they're functioning or not, but they're definitely over there. Okay. And then us, and uh, I think that might be it. I think there's one more in there, but uh, those are the two big ones other than us okay. that I can think of. And I don't know if some of this is historical, but Israel apparently uh, put them to good use, as they do a lot of the different aircraft we come up with. Mm-hmm. Japan, Jordan, Turkey, Pakistan, Philippines at one point. But what I really want to ask you about is I was flying in somewhere in Oregon. It wasn't this year. I think it was last year. And I saw an orange and white cobra sitting on the ramp, and I swore it said like U.S. forestry or something yeah. crazy. Yeah. What on earth are we doing with these things in the interior? So those are firewatch birds. Yeah, man, talk about a great job after you retire. That's not what I do, but it would be nice to fly cobras again, so maybe I'll look into that. But uh <laughs> The Army, I think, retired 25 Cobras at one point in the Forestry Service bottom and turned them into Firewatch birds. I've, you know, they put some avionics on there, like infrared sensors and things like that to just look for forest fires. And that's what they do. They go out and spot for the many other aircraft out there that can drop. They're not dropping firebombs to uh, back burn or yeah, something? <laughs> unfortunately not. If they were, then I would definitely be yeah, applying for that job. <laughs> but, but I guess what, relative ease of uh, use or agile, like you said, which we'll get to, I mean, just, or the availability, but one way or the other, they found their way into some, huh? Yeah. 
All right. So how about the looks? You know, in our aircraft series, we always talk about all these different things I've asked you so far. Now, the looks, you said they wanted something kind of derivative of the UH-1. So they probably leveraged some of that technology is like the skids, of course, is one of them. Mm -hmm. But I think the engines at first as well. But also the tandem seating and also it's really skinny. Is that on purpose? Yeah, so if you think about it from the point of view of what you want with an attack helicopter, tandem seating really fits what you want. Like we said, it allows the aircraft to be incredibly maneuverable, a little faster as it's slicing through the air. That also allows you to put weapons out to the side, you know, so you've got your wing stores out there, wing stubs, as we call them. And the more room you have for that, the skinnier you are, the more weapons you're allowed to put on there. So yeah, that's really the shape advantage that you have. And then, of course, as you're diving in, you know, on your target, shooting rockets and things like that, it's better to have that skinny profile when somebody's shooting back at you than it is to have a big fat torso out there that they can hit pretty easily. And does this, I assume, fold up into a fairly small package for uh, being on ship or being airlifted somewhere? I mean, when you guys went to Afghanistan, I'm thinking you didn't fly them there, right? No. So, you know, they were... (laughs) By the time I got to Afghanistan, we'd been there for quite a while. So those aircraft had been there. They don't fold. The tail won't fold up or anything like that. Yeah, that's really more of a CH-53 you would think of that does that. I mean, the blades do fold for the Zs, for the newer variants. And then the whiskey, you know, you can take the blades off. Okay. Or just put them fore and aft, and it's almost Mm -hmm. the same length as a a little longer on the front, obviously. Yeah, it's longer on the front, but yeah, you, you know, you can just pop them off or take them over like that. Okay. How about weapons? I mean, this thing carries a little of everything, seems like. Yeah, it does. Initially, you know, there's weapons that it started with and it still has. And there's some weapons that have gone by the wayside to be replaced with better ones. So, you know, initially and they had the tow missile, which was back in the day, it was really 2.75 inch rockets. So hydro rockets, you also had a 20 millimeter cannon on it. I think there's some versions out there that had uh, grenade launchers. I read that. That's crazy. Yeah. Never got to fly one of those, but that would have been (laughs) pretty sweet. Yeah. So you had that uh, three barrel cannon on there which is what it started with. And then, you know, as we progressed, technology progressed, you got better sensors and things like that. The next thing they put on was the tow missile. So that's wire-guided missile. Basically, you're putting the reticle on the target, firing it, and leaving the reticle there. There's a sensor on the missile that essentially joins up, and you hit the target with that. Funny enough, I was actually supposed to shoot the last tow missiles in the inventory for the gunfighters, uh, but when we went out that day, we had some hydraulic problems and I ended up not getting to do oh. it. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's one that went away. So we got rid of the toes. Five inch rockets, we still shot whenever I was starting out on the whiskey, but those have pretty much gone away as well. Those things are like shooting a telephone pole off of that thing. Really? They are huge. <laughs> and then you got the Hellfire missile, of course, which is a laser guided missile. So you don't have that wire constricting you anymore. Point your laser at the target, turn it on, shoot the missile, and then it hits the laser, which also hits the target. And then you know, I think everybody's favorite that doesn't fly the Cobra is the AIM-9, right? So that's your, your air-to-air missile, which uh, I've shot a few of them, actually, really? off of the Cobra, which is always super fun to do, but I haven't carried those in combat, haven't had the need to do it. Yeah. But, uh, the capability's there. Capability's there. Okay. Well, we have some listener questions at the end, and one of them, or two, actually, I think, are on the AIM-9, so we'll come back to it. Tell me about the gun up front. So I don't remember if it's something... I either saw like a documentary or maybe it was like one of the TV shows. Remember uh, Airwolf and uh, what was the other one? Uh, There was some... Firebirds, maybe? Yeah, the the guy from Jaws, Roy Schneider was in some movie. Anyway, where like it followed your head, but is that real? Like if you look to the right, is that barrel going to follow you over there? Yeah, that's absolutely real. And it's an awesome capability. I wouldn't say that we used it a ton, but it definitely was there. So, and the whiskey, you actually had to 
take a rod from the back of the plane and connect it to your helmet. <laughs> so that rod could be kind of cumbersome, but that's yeah. what helped you slew that gun. In the Zulu, the new one, it's just a wire. So wherever you move your head and that thing's got the Odo helmet, you know, it's like having a HUD on your eye. That one's actually really capable and you just point and shoot with that one. So wow. that's pretty awesome. What's the millimeter and what's the rate of fire on something like that? Yeah, so it's a uh, 20 millimeter right. cannon and it's 650 rounds a minute. So three barrel, yeah. Yeah. You know, you typically wouldn't empty the can with that, but you can run out of 20 mic mic pretty quickly though yeah. if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. And then with the wire guided, that just seems crazy to me with something with spinning blades on top. There's obviously a way to jettison the wire or something after it's over, or does that ever become an issue with the blades? Yeah. So <laughs> you'd be right to think that that's crazy. Yeah, um, okay. yeah. You know, you have emergency wire cutting and then it's supposed to cut its own wire. Definitely, you know, if you get an older missile or something like that and it kind of goes haywire, I've got buddies that have had them wrapped up in their rotors when they came back to land wow. after. So definitely, you know, has happened. We definitely don't use the tow anymore. And that's probably part of the reason we got rid of it was, but <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, uh, they're relatively thin, so it's not anything that's going to take you out of the sky, but definitely can be a maintenance issue. And so you carry these, I don't know if you call them wings or wherever you carry them, but how many stores can you carry on the wing stubs. So we had four stations that could carry either a seven shot rocket pod, a 19 shot rocket pod, or Hellfires or Toes, which typically have four in each of those. So in the, the whiskey, you've got two of those, excuse me, one of those, and, the, and then a wing stub, and then the Z, you've got two of them, and then the wings or the uh, in mounts where you're going to mount the AIM 9. Got more capability there. So if you're out really dialing it up, supporting the guys on the ground, what's your limitation? Is it weapons or fuel or? Yeah, sure. It depends on where you are, right? So, you know, when it's colder, ideally you're cold and low to the ground where, the, you know, the air, air is dense and you can pick it up. If it's hot and you're high up in the air, uh, for example, somewhere like Afghanistan, it kind of mm-hmm. limits you weight-wise where you can bag out the gas, but you may not be able to take as many weapons. You have a choice. If it's a close-in right. fight and you got a lot, you need a lot of weapons, then maybe you'll take a little less gas or a store tank and more weapons. And if not, you know, it's kind of a trade-off. Yeah. Is the gun on the nose the only gun? Can you mount any guns on the wings, like minigun or something? I don't no, know. No, that's the only one you can throw on there. Is the, well, it's always on there, but yeah, that's yeah. a 20 millimeter cannon. It's the only one we've got. All right. And then we'll get to it again later, but uh, what variants of the AIM-9? I shot the mic. Those are the ones that we primarily carried. Uh, when I was getting out, I, you know, I think there was talk about throwing the X on there, but I'm not sure where that's gone or yeah. if, if they're doing that. Now, in a Hornet, when I was using an AIM-9, I had some audio tones to let me know it, the seeker was seeing a heat source. Do you guys have something similar? It's exactly the same. Yeah, mm-hmm. cool. All right. Let's see. I don't know where else to cover this, so I'll just cover it here. So you talked about two pilots. So if you were a WTI in a squadron, mm-hmm. are you always necessarily going to be in one of those seats, or is it based on, hey, I've got a new guy, so I need him to get some calls in the back seat, or I need him to get some calls in the front seat? So you guys yeah. just kind of, that's part of the schedule writing for that day? Yep. It's always up to whoever the aircraft commander is ultimately. So yeah, he's going to say, Hey, you're in the front today. I'm in the back or whatever, you know, he or she decides Mm -hmm. in a training environment. It matters in the whiskey. I should say it really matters. You can only fire the toe from the front in the front seat is where the telescope is. And that's where all the buttons are and the triggers to fire the toe and to aim it and to get it where it needs to go or the hellfire on the whiskey. So typically in the whiskey, you had a pilot, but he's acting as a gunner in the front. The guy in the back seat's typically kind of running the mission. He or she is primarily going to be shooting rockets hmm. and fixed forward gun uh, is what you shoot in the back. And then in the front seat, you'd slew the gun with the sensor 
and then fire any missiles that you had. Yeah. In the Zulu, we actually kind of switched that role because the cockpits are, again, identical in the Zulu, front and back. So you actually have better visibility in the front. So we kind of switched it up to where the guy in the front was always the one who was primarily flying, and the one in the back is the one doing all the weapons stuff. Crazy. And yeah, it just depends on what your mission is that day. In training, it's like, hey, you got to go shoot a Hellfire missile. So you're going to be in the back seat and do that today right. in the Z. So One of the two crew will be designated the aircraft commander. But if there's specific training for that day, then that's clear to the aircraft commander. So it's not like he or she is just going to go, oh, no, you get in this seat or whatever. Yep. All right. How about performance? Now, you talked about its maneuverability. But before we get to that, so I can read about speed and altitude and all that but what have you seen in this thing whether it's speed over the deck or how high you've gone or it's not a jet fighter i realize but yeah. still when yeah. you're low to the ground <laughs> you know it certainly feels like you're going fast um yeah. we've definitely been extremely low over the desert you know in 50 20 feet stuff like that you know when you're doing 170 knots uh, 175 knots that low it's definitely quick fastest i've personally gone in a cobra is, was 200 which is the v and e never exceed speed in the z mm-hmm it was an instructor was demoing it uh, when I was transitioning. We had to climb up a little bit and get a dive in <laughs> to get to that speed, but mm-hmm. that was pretty exciting. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. As far as altitude goes, highest I've ever gone, we never really go above six or seven, and that's just to climb over mountains. But uh, the highest I've ever gone, I want to say it was 11, because we had some weather that we had to get over. 11,000 feet going from Camp Pendleton to 29 Palms. And so we had to climb up to climb over that weather, and it was definitely a wild experience (laughs) for me. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah. Does the aircraft even bother with supplemental oxygen or anything? I guess No. And and that's a limiting factor, right? right? Per our regulations, we're not allowed to go above 10,000 for a certain amount of time. So right. part of the reason we typically don't do it. Yeah. And can it pull very many Gs? I mean, again, big blades don't like to pull Gs typically, but I'm guessing it can do some? Or Yeah, you can do about two in it without getting yourself into trouble. You typically want to stay away from that as much as possible. More so in the whiskey than in the Z. You can whip it around a little bit in the Zulu. But uh, whiskey, you definitely want to stay away from doing too much craziness. And then with regards to maneuverability, you know, I'm thinking of, remember the old school uh, little U-control airplanes where you'd stand in the middle and you hold the little control with on string and the little yeah. airplane would buzz around in a circle? So if I'm in my F-18, I could theoretically be that airplane at the end of the string flying around you, but I need wind over my wings. Meanwhile, you in the middle could just sit there and essentially pivot in a 360. So Absolutely. when you talk about the maneuverability of this aircraft, is that basically what you're talking about? It's, Point almost anywhere? Yeah, it can do anything. One of my favorite things I used to do with young students to just get them proficient with the aircraft is we would go out and on a taxi line, I'd say, hey, I want you to put the rotor mass on this taxi line 
and we're going to taxi down the runway and I want you to spin the aircraft as we're taxiing around that mast and keep that mast on the taxi line. So, I mean, that's just an exercise in how Mm -hmm. maneuverable it is. So, yeah. I've never flown a helicopter, but as far as helicopters go, is this one easy to fly, difficult? Does the two-blade versus four-blade make much difference to you or the narrowness of the aircraft? Yeah. You know, as a guy who's flown both helicopters and planes, I'll tell you helicopters are much, much more difficult to fly. Now I'm saying that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but (laughs) it is tough. So it's funny, though. I'm sure, as you know, the hardest aircraft you fly are honestly in flight school. uh, (laughs) So the Bell 206, they used to put us out there without one. It has a SCAS system. What it does is counteracts your maneuvers so that you don't over-control the aircraft. So when we start out, we fly that thing that doesn't have that SCAS system, so it's really unwieldy. But as you progress and you get to the Z, the Z is much easier to fly because it has a robust you know, stabilization system for you. It gets a little wonky when you're getting low because it sits kind of cocked off to the left side, so you got to kind of put your left aft skid down first. Landing, it's a little more difficult, but it definitely becomes easier to fly the better the technology gets. Yeah, for sure. And then as far as employing it, stick and throttle and all that, as I'm guessing, especially on the Zulu, pretty uh, up-to-date. You've got Hotaz, you've got a, you said uh, some sort of sight. Is it the whole helmet or just like over one eye? The Odo helmet, it's pretty awesome capability. So it's basically a helmet that attaches that reticle to your left eye. It gives you a HUD, essentially, you know, right in your eye. So anywhere you're looking, you're getting information. Oh, cool. When you deployed to Afghanistan, did you go on like a ship to get there or what did you? No, we went to um, out in the established base there and we're just flying missions okay. out of that thing. So I guess what I'm wondering, like, is a crosswind a big deal for you or is there, are there any particular landings or anything that you're doing with it that would be administrative that are hairy? So for me, it would be like a night carrier landing, especially sure. if the ship's moving up and down at all. But guys who flew it at the boat, did they say, just go do it and it's not a big event? I mean, no, it's definitely a big event. You know, winds are very important, especially if you're heavy and got stores and things like that. A tailwind can really mess you up. It is definitely maneuverable, but if you need that power to pick up that heavy load, you definitely still want a headwind so that you can move forward out of that rotor wash so that you can start to fly, essentially. How about how much fuel, and I don't necessarily mean pounds, although you can tell me if you want, but like if you are... I know it depends, right? Always how far is it? How much am I using the throttles? But what would be a typical mission for you guys to uh, go out and support the folks if you didn't have that much of a transit, let's say? Sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I I feel like people talk about range in in miles all the time, and Mm -hmm. I kind of think of range in time, right? right? So, you know, the rule of thumb for the whiskey was about two hours, and then the Z bumps it up to about two and a half. So you can definitely do more in the Zulu. And you could also carry those drop tanks if you needed to with the weapons in the Z as well, but typically about two and a half is what you're looking at. Well, at least though, you guys can put down somewhere if you really get to a yeah. point where, right? Yeah, that's the beauty of it. You know, you can put down and have the fuel trucks come meet you or, yeah. or whatever you need to do. So. You probably don't want to make a habit of that. that was <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How about strengths and weaknesses? What was your favorite feature about it? And what did they not fix that you wish they would if you know, sure. they just had the desire or the money or whatever? Man, so this is kind of a hard one because my love for the Cobra is endless. I love the whiskey <laughs> and I love the Zulu. So. All right. So strengths, obviously, I've talked a lot about the maneuverability, the things that you can do in that aircraft, just the variety of weapons that it carries is just really incredible. You can certainly just do some things that you can't do in other aircraft in it. So, you know, I'd say the biggest strength is the maneuverability and the stores that it can carry. Weaknesses, my really only complaint about the Cobra is it was an issue kind of with the Whiskey and the Zulu is that gun on the front. It's a great asset. It's a great weapon, but it 
essentially still has its original design. Uh, you have to have good ordnance marines that know what they're doing, and it works really well. But there's definitely room for you know jams and things like that uh, to where it may not work to its fullest capability. So that was the only thing that I think they could have improved a little bit. But you know, other than that, I'm pretty happy with it. <laughs> are there probably even systems out there that would work if someone would just put the money into testing and putting it on? Or do you think they'd add? A- sure. You know, I think it's one of those things that one of the biggest strengths of the Cobra is the bang that you get for the buck. And uh, it's just, you know, the Marine Corps, it's a smaller service. So uh, we don't always get all the money that we would like to have to improve those kind of things. So <laughs> you get leftovers after yep. we spend it all on big carriers and stuff. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned weapons and it occurred to me, I didn't ask you about flares. You guys are down rooting around low. So I assume you have expendables. Yep. Is it mostly flares or will you have some chaff as well? Mixed depending on the mission. Yeah. Okay, and what the threat is, et cetera. All right. Do you have enough of those? Like in the original Hornet, we had two buckets of 30 each, and that was always one of our biggest complaints is mm-hmm. a couple of actuations and you were out. So did you guys have enough? I mean, you definitely had to have a strategy to, you know, use them efficiently, but I, I would certainly say enough to do what you needed it to do. That's good. All right, cool. How about notoriety? Where would the public have seen or heard the AH-1? You know, I'm familiar with it, of course, having lived this life, but has it been in the movies? Are there any teams or particular newsworthy stories that we would have seen it there's a few movies that it's been in not as many as i would like don't say transformers (laughs) (laughs) mission impossible 3 it has a chase scene uh where a cobra is chasing around a huey i believe it is another one which is funny is gold member austin powers so (laughs) the opening scene of gold member has it's a spoof on mission impossible 3 and uh austin it's tom cruise pretending like he's austin powers in a movie and he's getting chased by a cobra in that scene. So <laughs> I've only seen that once and I don't remember that. So I'll have to go check <laughs> yeah, it out. It's, it's memorable to a cobra guy, but yeah. uh, maybe not everybody else. Okay. So, All right. The only other one I think is Connor. I think it's in Connor. Yeah, I think American Sniper, but you know, any movie that's Iraq or Afghanistan for the last 20 yeah, years you'll, is you'll probably, probably see him in there. Probably gonna feature it. Yeah, for sure. All right, cool. Now you said you have about a thousand hours in this thing and you've taught at different levels, WTI. Any particular missions stand out in your mind, whether training or uh, overseas or anything else that you probably got a lot of stories. Any you're willing to share on air? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I definitely did stuff in Afghanistan and all that kind of thing. But I think the most fun that I had in the Cobra was at WTI. And I think maybe the one I'm most proud of is, you know, there's an exercise out there where it's essentially good guys versus bad guys and uh, different aircraft play different roles in that. And what you got to do is essentially penetrate defenses in order to destroy a target out in the middle of the big desert out there. So we had about eight Cobras and it was just a big, huge flight of Cobras. We had tons of ordnance and we had to figure out a plan to penetrate the defenses of the mock town that we were going to get to. So in the middle of the night, we decided to just go low and fast and dark and just speed through the cacti through there. You know, they had F-18s up there. They had all kinds of defenses and they, they weren't able to find us. You know, we got to the target and we just picked up and sat kind of on the top of a hill, four Cobras in a line and just launched a whole bunch of hellfire into that town. That's probably one of the most fun times that I think I've had in that Cobra. So that's one of my favorite memories and and stories of it. Yeah, very cool. Was it actual ordinance for the training? Yeah. And like I said, the great thing about WTI is you get all the ordinance you can ask for. Yeah, a lot of times in my training, it's simulated, you know, missile shots, of course, simulated JDAM drops or whatever. And Mm -hmm. 
very rarely do you get to push the button and something comes off. But when you do, it's fun because then you can see how you did. Yep. Awesome. Well, tell you what, Jehun, I've got a handful of listener questions here I want to run by you. These are folks that support the show via Patreon, which is a great benefit to me, but also as one of their perks, they get to know in advance when I'm going to meet someone like you. And so (laughs) ask questions. So if you're Cool. cool with it, we can get through these fairly quickly. And some of the listeners right now are probably thinking, wait, dude, you didn't ask anything about these subjects. And that was deliberate because I know they're coming up here. Sure. So John F. wants to know what sets the Cobra apart from its contemporaries, i.e. the Apache, and then as far as foreign aircraft go, the MI-28 or the KA-52, the Eurocopter. Obviously, different mission sets and needs for these aircraft, but being that it is one of the longest-serving airframes or designs, what is the secret sauce to its success? So again, I didn't really compare it to any of these others, but how would you, and how would you explain, as John's asking, some of the features of it that has uh, led to its success for so long? I think one of the biggest things, it isn't sexy or fun to talk about or anything like that, but, you know, it comes down to kind of money. As far as the Cobra goes, it is the best bang for your buck aircraft out there, especially the Whiskey. You know, we kind of talked about the Marine Corps being a little more constrained than our sister services, you know, and there's also logistics for maintenance and things like that. So to just keep moving along with the Cobra and make better versions of it is really cost effective for us. Mm. I would also say that it's good for the ship. You know, it was made for the ship and the Marine Corps uh, needs that capability and likes that capability. So that's one of the advantages that it has kind of over maybe a Apache or, or something like that. Okay. And I didn't ask or warn you I was going to ask this, so I hate to put you on the spot. As far as some aircraft go, super high man hours per flight hour or cost per flight hour, are you familiar with the Cobra? Is it fairly low for both of those or is it aircraft are still complex? They are. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I wouldn't want any of my uh, former maintenance Marine friends to hear me say it, but I would say that, you know, they're probably like, yeah, it's a ton of man hours, man. (laughs) Now I couldn't really speak to it, but I would say it's relatively low, especially compared to something huge, like a super stallion or something like that. So. Okay. In the fighter world, I mean, gosh, I forget what it was at the end, but the F-18 was $12,000 per hour kind of thing. Yeah. And F-14 before it retired was 24 hours to one hour of flight time kind of thing yeah. for maintenance. So yep. uh, fairly simple and, and I guess maybe built intentionally to be repairable in austere locations, right? Yeah, absolutely. And serviceable for mm-hmm. that matter. Yeah. And I've spent the night in the desert before because we've had an issue and, you know, they've bring a couple of Marines and a Huey out there and fix it. And you fly it home the next day. So not enough room for a sleeping bag, but luckily we always have our Huey friends to drop some stuff off for us. So <laughs> swing can by and drop you off a, sorry about the break kid. Here's yep. a bottle of champagne. Exactly. Whatever he says in yep. uh, Tommy boy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, what can you carry? Just a little helmet bag next to you. Is there any storage compartment anywhere? Yeah. So there is in the tail you got to be careful though, because there's a spinning Shaft, you know, metal probably. shaft yeah, yeah. back there that uh, is attached to the tail rotor. So you got to be careful putting stuff back there, <laughs> but it's not much room. It's, you know, it's room for about the size of a lunchbox. <laughs> and then in the cockpit itself, you really have room for your pubs and, you know, an M4 and a bottle of water. And that's about it. Keep an M4 there with you, huh? Yeah. I guess if you go down, you want to keep staying in the fight, right? <laughs> yeah. We had uh, yeah M4s and uh, M9s in Afghanistan. So we wow. Jeff Campbell says there's a story or two involving AH-1 crews rescuing some friendlies behind battle lines and bringing them back to safety in the rear. With that, I've also heard that the AH-1 actually might include some sort of formal procedure for that contingency. Are those stories true, and does the AH-1 and its crews, in fact, prepare for that contingency? So I think he's talking about getting folks to stand on the skids, strap them on, and go. You know, you could definitely do it. I think if you needed to, we don't. We certainly don't train to it. You know, we don't really 
keep anything to do that if we needed to. Because like I said, we really fight as a team with those Hueys. So we typically have them with us. So it's not really necessary. I haven't ever heard of it as far as I know. Hey, again, just being a dumb jet guy. So skids, right? So as soon as you start up on the flight line and you need to go somewhere, are you just lifting a foot or two off the ground and going that way? Mm -hmm. And then what if maintenance needs to move this thing? They have a little specially adapted dolly to... Yeah, they'll jack it up and put wheels on it, and then they can tow it where they need to. Mm -hmm. Matt McDonough says, I'd be curious to know if there are significant differences in how the Marine Corps trains its crews to employ the Cobra versus the Army's doctrine for the Apache. It seems like the Marines spend more time low and fast when providing fires. Is that true? And then before you answer that one, I've got another one. Well, actually, you can answer that one. I'll come back to uh, another one related to that. But again, we didn't really talk about the Cobra versus the Apache. We've had the Apache on the show. They're both supporting the folks on the ground. Are they similar? Do you guys do exchanges with them? Is it a similar fight or is it a different fight? Yeah, so we do do exchanges. We even do exchanges with um, the Australians and fly the... the like the pilots will mm-hmm, come and do a tour will, or something? Yeah, pilots okay. will do a tour. We do exchanges with the Brits. So you probably have a guest that's better versed in it than I am. But you know, the best way that I can think of to explain it off the top of my head is kind of like we talked about earlier, where we're kind of supporting Marines that are on the ground in a fight, whereas the Army is typically going to doctrinally employ Apaches against tanks more as a cavalry type asset. They're going out to be a part of the overall bigger picture, whereas we're primarily going to be there just to support those Marines that are out in the open on the ground is kind of the way that I would think about the employment differences between those aircraft. When you guys chopped to Afghanistan, though, were you part of the ATO? So was the Air Force's commander guy, I forget all the terminology suddenly, but yep. they're tasking you for different missions and yep. not just in support of Marines necessarily? No, yeah, okay. not just in support of Marines. No, as long as there's a JTAC on the ground, you know, joint terminal air controller or a port right. air controller on the ground, then we can go out and support anybody. You know, we always like to say, hey, give me a radio frequency and a coordinate and we'll go and we'll support you. Right. So, But so, for example, on night one of Desert Storm, they might not choose Cobras to be the first ones to sneak across the line and sneakily take out a bunch of surveillance sites or whatever it was they did on night one. No, I'd say they still would do that because Cobras are awesome. No, and, <laughs> well, <laughs> no it's, it, it, I meant from tasking point of view, not <laughs> capability. It's funny that you mentioned that because I actually, and I'm going to get some flack from my some of my more senior guys that were Iraq vets, but no, they actually did send out divisions of Cobras out on night one in Iraq, so... They definitely do it, but I kind of use that to illustrate maybe the differences in the way that you would think of it if you were like learning about it in a book. That's kind of how the differences are. But essentially, they're you know it's pretty similar yeah. as far as what you would use it for. Okay. And some of the Apaches and then some of the OH-58 Kiowas will have like the mast mounted site and mm-hmm. some of that. Was that not anything the Marine Corps ever figured they needed? I'm sure we certainly needed it, but uh, you know money's always an issue, and we ne- <laughs> certainly never saw it when I was there. That seems to be the recurring theme here. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm feeling a little guilty being the <laughs> Navy in the room. All right. So that was from Matt McDonough. And the related question is from Michael, one of our newer supporters from Slovakia. He says, in comparison to AH-64A or D model, were there any training exercises as combat between these two helicopters, one-on-one or two-on-two, like Marine Corps versus Army, uh, et cetera? So did you do any sort of use them as adversary or do that for them perhaps? So typically when we're going out to do DACM, again, you know, what BFM is what you guys would call Mm -hmm. it, but uh, we call it defensive air combat maneuvering, right? Because if we're in an air-to-air fight, 
our goal is to be defensive and survive the fight, not necessarily go out and take somebody down. So, you know, aim nine is more of a defensive weapon for us. So typically when we do that, we fight each other. So we'll do Hueys versus Cobras or a section or something like that. I have done inner service before. I was actually fortunate enough to be part of one where we went out to the Air Force Weapons School and we fought some of the guys. We were the adversaries. And they were uh, Jolly Green Giant, which is a, a rescue, you know, I don't know if you've had any of them on your show, but hoping, yeah, definitely <laughs> should get some of those guys on there. They're incredible. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so they fly very heavy Blackhawks. And so we were able to go be adversaries for them. And we had some fun certainly going up against them because they're a little less capable in the dogfight than we are. So it was a good time for us and good training for them. But <laughs> yeah. um, really, that's the only kind of inner service stuff All I've right. done. But Jaren, so I know you're going to reach across and punch me for this, but I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> I'm thinking about two Cobras or two helicopters dogfighting, and I'm thinking like that scene from Finding Nemo where the two crabs have their claws up and they're just like, hey, hey, and they're turning around and facing each other the whole time. I mean, <laughs> right? Like yeah. in a fighter, I've got to be able to maneuver and I got to always go forward like a shark. Yep. But you crabs can just kind of turn and face each other the whole time and just keep shooting each other. I mean, how on earth do you dogfight helicopters? <laughs> Well, hey, I, you hey. know, yeah, I wouldn't say that it's too dissimilar from that. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, when you're in that dogfight, it mm-hmm. definitely feels as though you are pulling some G's and going really fast. I remember the first time I ever watched it happen. Cause typically, we'll go out in a flight of four, and two will fight, and two go off and land and, and watch and see it happen. But I remember the first time watching it, thinking, "Man, that is a lot slower than it feels like when it's happening." It felt a little bit like underwater basketball to me for as fast as we were moving. So, But typically, yeah, we'll run at each other and then it's kind of like jousting and just really get into that circle fight. And Mm -hmm. really, whoever comes up on top in that circle fight is going to be the one that wins that day. So this is super foreign to me, dude. So you can just go pick some random spot and land and watch this thing. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we go out in El Centro, Uh Yuma, the desert out there, and it's like, all right. You guys go over here and fight. We're going to save gas. So we would go out and just land in the desert and throttle down and just wait till our turn. <laughs> I've always wondered this because in a fixed wing, I log every landing. So if you go out and do that a couple of times, do you come back and say, wait, how many landings was it? Four or five? Yeah. I mean, we definitely keep track of it, yeah. but it's easy to lose count in that type of situation. <laughs> All right. Well, I know I'm going to take some grief for comparing you guys to crabs, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it might be worth it. Yeah. All right. So let's see. Gary Frey wants to know, did they upgrade the gun targeting system? I think you already talked about this, right? Along the lines of the Apache's helmet mounted direct reticle imaging. So we talked about the reticle that follows you, but you had some complaints about the gun itself. So uh, what would you say to Gary here? Yeah, I mean, they definitely did upgrade it. And, you know, my complaints about the gun are about the functionality of the gun itself, not the targeting. The targeting system is awesome. It's just those inner mechanics could sometimes get kind of funky. So, and especially in the Z, it was really awesome. You know, they kind of upgraded it. We call it the Xbox controller. You know, we have like literally a video game controller that we're looking at our screens and moving the gun around, which is really helpful at night, you know, when you need to be up and out of the cockpit as well as in. So yeah, significant upgrades there and really capable system. And Gary's question reminded me that I didn't really ask you about night stuff and you talked about it, but I forgot to ask you. I assume some sort of either the reticle works at night or night vision goggles or Mm -hmm. something along those lines. There's a day reticle and there's a night reticle. And the day one is, you know, your standard. And then the night reticle attaches to uh, your night vision goggles. It makes it a little more cumbersome, but it works really well. Yeah. And I've loved using it. Cool. 
I don't know how long it's been since your last flight, but are you getting some of this? Aren't they starting to come up with panoramic type night vision goggles? The stuff we used in the F-18 was still like a 30 or 40 degree field of view. So it was like having straws over yeah. your eyes and you yeah. had to scan it everywhere to make a picture. I'm pretty sure that's what they're still doing. You know, there's always the legend of, oh, the panoramic's coming out. It's coming day, soon. Yeah. yeah, it never materializes. So <laughs> it's like the sign at the bar, free beer tomorrow. Yeah, right? exactly. It's always tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. All right, let's see. Jim Gundog wants to know, how long do the Marines expect to keep flying the FAH-1? FH-1. Are they pretty much uh, ride or die since it is limited budget is spent elsewhere? So Jim obviously uh, understands what you've been talking about with budget. But, you know, we'll talk about the future of you and the AH-1. But does this thing, does it have a death date in mind or does it just go forever at this point? You know, I don't really think so as far as the death date goes. Certainly anything can come off the chopping block as, as priorities shift from different parts of the world to other parts of the world and, and what we need as a Marine Corps. So I think that's one of the Marine Corps' biggest strengths is, you know, we're willing to do what we have to do with what we have. Who knows? It could last for another 30 years. Um, it could be gone tomorrow. Yeah. It's only been around for about 10 years, so I'd say it has a good shelf life remaining. But I would also say that I'm probably part of the last generation of actual Cobra pilots as we get to like tilt rotor type stuff and, and things like that. Okay. Yeah. Not really a solid answer for you there, <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but you reminded me, I wanted to ask you about the Zulu. Are they making those from scratch? Is the line still open at bell or are these like refurbed older ones? Uh, mix of both. Oh really? Yep. So you can take a whiskey and turn it into a Z and then huh. uh, come straight off the line as okay. well. But what about the two engine ones have been around forever now, but the single engine, could you just take that airframe and put two engines in it? A single engine Cobra airframe and put two. Yeah, are those in. like long gone? Those are long gone, oh, okay. long, right. long gone. Yeah, they, yeah, they haven't been around for a long okay. time. If you lose an engine, by the way, are you like, holy crap, trouble? Or hey, okay, I just need to put down. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, as all my answers, it just depends. You know, training flight, you can certainly bring it back on one. Sorry, you could land if you needed to. Combat, you might want to limp at home on one, and it depends on the weight. You know, depending on how heavy you are, you can certainly stay airborne with one, and in other cases, you may need to land. Yeah. So. Do you guys have the ability to get rid of things, jettison? Uh, yep, which is great when you need it. And it, if someone presses the wrong button, <laughs> it, can be, it can make for a bad right. day. Okay. And then, of course, our last two questions here are both based on the AIM-9. What model of the AIM-9 can it carry, asks Anthony Lombardo, which I've already asked you. And then Jevin says, what training do crews receive for the Sidewinders, self-defense only, or do they train to be able to attack drones or choppers or fixed-wing aircraft? And have they scored any combat kills with this? So you said the 9 mic, the 9X is coming, so for Anthony's point. But as far as the training goes, again, everybody else thinks it's cool and sexy, but in reality, right, <laughs> yeah. you don't do a lot of it? Yeah, reality, and again, I'm speaking from experience a few years ago, but we would train to it when we needed the qual and to get that proficiency. And we certainly did train to it in a defensive standpoint, but mm-hmm. typically you're not going to send Cobras out to go take out a couple of MiGs or something like that. So we carry the AIM-9 for primarily defensive purposes. Couple times a year, we do. Not everyone gets two, but you know, you fire one, a live one off the rail. And I'm not sure if they're doing anything with drones. I wouldn't expect it these days, but yeah, primarily defensive if you need it. If there's yeah. an air threat. Did you guys ever have like ready room discussions or even formal, perhaps, of hey, if you're running out of weapons and you can get a lock onto a heat source with this thing, even if it's a truck or an enemy on the ground, that you can still hose it off. I mean, we always talked about that in the Hornet. I think there was maybe back in Vietnam or something, but I don't know of any recent successful attacks like that did you guys ever talk about that kind of thing 
Yeah, you know, I would say the amount of time that we spent talking about and worrying about the AIM-9 was probably less than 1%. Okay. Um, so, but <laughs> something that gets mentioned in is a capability if you need it, but yeah. not something we train to super hard. Yeah. Well, you've certainly illuminated the Cobra for me, uh, Jehoon. I didn't know that much about it, and it's fun to learn a little bit more. And yeah, I've seen the four-bladed ones running around, and I thought, wait, you know, it, it looks different. <laughs> so we need to get a UH-1 guy in here, right? Because you say it's different enough. I mean, same squadron, but different aircraft, sure. different mission. Yeah, it'll probably be, uh, you know, a much less exciting interview, and uh, it won't be as good, but sure. Might I as te- well have one I of those guys. I that one up for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So we talked about the future of the aircraft. Sounds like it's going to be around for a little while. We'll talk about the future of you in a second, but before we do, what did I not ask you about the Cobra? When you go home and talk to mom and grandma or, or, you know, neighbors or whatever. What is it that like, right. We're all asking about the sidewinder, but in reality, it doesn't sound like it's a big deal. Sure. So what is a big deal or what have I not asked you about the AH one? So, yeah, I think the big deal for us, certainly in the past couple decades has always been close air support. How do we help that Marine on the ground that needs us? I think one of the special things about the Marine Corps is how integrated we are. And, you know, we talked about the basic school and, and things like that. So, my best friend is an infantry guy. And I always thought about that in the back of my mind is how can I train better today? How can I do a better job so that when he needs me, I can go help him. So, you know, that close air support mission is really our bread and butter. And it's what's near and dear to my heart. And what always, you know, has that place for me is just helping those Marines on the ground and doing what we need to do to make sure that they get what they need. You know, I'm really glad you said that, Jehoon, because I have a couple personal crusades I've <laughs> with this show, and one of them has been breaking down the stereotypes, right? Sure. So you being a military aviator, a Marine aviator, you might be unfairly stereotyped as, oh, look at me, you know, <laughs> you put your collar up and wear your mirrored sunglasses. But in your community of Cobra guys, is it about them or is it about the Marine on the ground? And I think I know the answer. About the Marine on the ground, 100%. All day, every that's, day. Yeah, that's what we care about. That's what we think about. That's what we do. There's that bond that all Marines have, and you want to do everything you can to be there for them. Take that, Hollywood. (laughs) No, that's good. Uh, I've had a few folks talk about that, even our A-10 guest, right? They're they're not supporting Air Force guys on the ground directly, but he said the same thing. It was about the 18-year-old with a rifle, and I feel like most everyone that I've interviewed for this show has been the same way. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, cool. Yeah, for me, I mean, yeah, it was great to fly a Hornet. Sure. But I was always serving someone. Yeah. And right? I wasn't just out serving myself. I right. was out doing something for someone, and, and I think that's who we are. So, all right, man. So you said you're still in the Marine Corps Reserves. Are you flying? Or are you pushing paper? What are you doing? PowerPoint? Yeah, no, I'll tell you what. I <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not flying Cobras, but uh, I, I do have a really awesome job. I fly uh, UC-35s, which is a uh, citation you know, business jet. So nice. I go down to Miramar every once in a while and fly around VIPs and uh, take it all over the U.S. So it's a pretty good gig. I'm yeah, well, it. plus you're still serving and you're still accruing time so that someday if you retire from all this, you'll have some nice perks instead of just walking away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah getting all that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. And you're building seniority at an airline, right? So is that what you're doing now? Correct. Yep. Yeah, I got out in the middle of the pandemic, <laughs> you know, got off active duty, did a cargo carrier for a while and uh, just got with a major airline. So I'm cool. in training for that and enjoying it. Well, as I sit here now with the hindsight, uh, benefit hindsight, I wish I'd have got to the airline sooner because being junior sucks as you're probably learning, <laughs> but you're starting a lot younger than I did. So sure. you'll, you'll get some good seniority. I've only got barely 14 years left in this job. So, all right, man. And then the last question, of course, as always is Travis Denny, but Jay Hoon. So this has got to be good. I hope. <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, I think a lot of call signs have like a specific story that you can kind of 
pin it down to, but mine's kind of a culmination of a lot of stories. So when I was on my first deployment, you know, we were in Afghanistan and there was an Afghan helicopter unit in the Afghan Air Force uh, and they flew MI-17s, which is an old, you know, Russian kind of utility helicopter. And they flew those around and their call sign on the radio was Jehun. And <laughs> there were many, many comparisons made by my squadron mates between the way that I flew and the way that those guys <laughs> flew and the kind of the way that we carried ourselves and uh, the way that we tended to do things. And it's one of those call signs that just kind of, it was too perfect for them not to bestow it upon me. So that's where that one comes from. All right. Fantastic. And I'm going to break my own show rules here and actually circle back to something because you said at the very beginning that you wanted to fly helos. So can I hold you to that? So this is, of course, the fighter pilot podcast. And we have a lot of young people that want to be fighter pilots. And a lot of them ask me, oh, but what if I don't get it? And I always try to tell them, hey, there's a lot of awesome careers out there and they're not all in fighters. So I'm not saying I don't believe you, but I want to (laughs) to ask you again, (laughs) is that really what you wanted? And and what would you say to the young person that maybe wants jets, but ends up in helicopters? Sure. The joke that all the helo guys like to make is, well, I had jet grades, but I wanted helicopters. Right. Right. Right? So, (laughs) so my grandfather was a Marine in World War II. And I think that that Marine part of me was a big influence in that, you know, going to the basic school, and doing those infantry type things mm-hmm. and sleeping in the mud with your friends and, and all that kind of thing. I really liked that just being down in the grit with your fellow Marines. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the platform that allowed me to do that the best and the platform that will allow me to really make a difference and support those Marines on the ground was the Cobra. Yeah. That's what I wanted and that's what I fought for. But I will tell any young aviator out there, and no one believes you until you get it, right? People say, oh, if you don't get Cobras, it'll be okay. And I certainly didn't believe them. But, you know, I'm sure people have said this, but no matter what you get, you're going to love it. There's not a bad platform out there, and they're all amazing, especially in their own rights. And no matter what you fly, you should be extremely proud to do it. Just doing the job, no matter what it is, is something to be proud of. So just keep fighting. Whatever you end up in is worth it, I promise. Amen. Well, I couldn't say that better, Jehun. Thank you for that. That's a great way to wrap up. I will add one caveat. And of course, you got to have a good attitude because some yep. people become grouches <laughs> or grumps and, and they, you know, they can't be happy in anything. But if you can look for the good in something, yeah, we've had folks on the show wanted to be fighter pilots and ended up in the back of an E2 as an NFO yep. and loved it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you have the right attitude and effort. You make something out of everything. Yep. Awesome. Well, hey, man, it's good getting to know you. And we're both here in San Diego, so hopefully we can connect more often. And and I want to wish you all the best at your airline and your reserve gig and whatever else it is you're doing. And thanks for your time today. All right. Thanks a lot, Jello. Enjoyed it. All right, Jehoon, my man, thanks again for taking the time on the AH-1 Cobra. I really enjoyed that. Learned a lot. And he's right here in San Diego, so hopefully we'll maybe hear or see him again soon. Yeah, good times. Boy, we really did cover a lot on the AH-1. I learned a lot. And I know some of you, as you often do after these episodes, are going to say, hey, you didn't really cover any of the Army models, those early single-engine models. And you're right. Part of it is that we just don't want to take a bunch more time. This isn't the Joe Rogan three-hour experience. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And so we're not going to cover it all. Part of that is we just don't do the research. Part of it is we don't want to take all day. And part of it, frankly, is I want to leave you wanting a little more. Maybe we'll circle back. Maybe we'll do a blog on it or something. I don't know. And of course, a lot of this stuff is available on the internet anyway. So good times. Learned a lot. I hope you enjoyed it. 
All right, a couple follow-up thoughts here. Blue Thunder is the name of the Roy Schneider movie. I remember enjoying it as a kid. I bet if I watched it today, I'd probably agree with the 78% it got on Rotten Tomatoes. Four out of five stars, but eh, I remember enjoying it as a kid. And then Jehun got back to me. He said his friends told him that the whiskey is about 10 to 15 man hours per flight hour, and the Zulu being the newer model, of course, slightly less, about eight to 12 man hours per flight hour. And then he couldn't find anyone who knew the numbers. So I Googled it and found a 2017 Secretary of Defense memo that pitched the F-18, read about what I was saying, $13,000 per flight hour. He has the whiskey at about 9,000 per flight hour and the Zulu at a little over half that, about $5,000 per flight hour, which is quite a savings. And again, I can't help but wonder how much of that is the uh, all that new technology he talked about. I really love the example since my wife just bought a Tesla anyway, and I have an old muscle car. It's not a Camaro, but it's a Mustang. And so, yeah, I definitely get the difference between the whiskey and the Zulu if one's the old muscle car and the other's the Tesla. Good stuff. Anyway, if there's anything else we mentioned there that we screwed up or got wrong or left out, let me know. Questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com is where you can reach us. And that's going to do it for this one. Now, we haven't had a real episode in a while, so I've got a bunch of new supporters to mention. And I'm so happy these folks show up to support the show because they get a lot of cool perks and we get to keep the lights on and the microphone running. So big thanks to Strike Leads, Jaden Chain, Christopher Lenari, Jimmy Rangecroft, and Travis Anders. Then we have Mission Commanders, Greg Lund, Benny Harwell, Vanessa Brown at David Slinnan. And then Air Bosses, that's the highest tier you can get, is Gary Fry. Now, Gary submitted one of the questions I put to Jay Hoon, and I accidentally mispronounced it as Gary Frey. So sorry about that, Gary. Michael Dercock and Robert Hosterman. As a reminder, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Now, before I go, I alluded to it earlier, and you might remember me talking about this back in July. Well, we are ready to announce the new sibling podcast. It's going to be called, get this, the F-14 Tomcast. Like that, huh? And it's going to debut on September 14th. It's going to air every other Tuesday, Tomcat Tuesday. Every other Tuesday is 14 days apart. And it's going to go for a year. It's going to be hosted by Crunch and Bio. Crunch, you might remember from our Sam and AAA threat about a year ago, a couple episodes there. Bio, you might know from his books, Top Gun Days. He was on the Top Gun staff when they filmed the original movie. And these guys, Pilot and Rio, are going to be hosting the F-14 Tomcast. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. they got some amazing folks lined up already. Episode one is going to be about the development. Episode last, I think 26 or so, is going to be about the retirement. And everything in the middle is going to be everything that happened. Everything from conflicts it was in to Top Gun the movie and uh, Final Countdown and who knows what else. So we've got a great plan for that show. We are going to debut or simulcast like we did the merge episode one next week. So that'll be a slight difference. And then after that, we'll be back with our buddy Boat, who has a Warbird episode for us. Yeah, another crazy month. You'll hear from me and let's see about a month from now, the beginning of October. Until then, take care. Be well. Thanks for tuning in to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We're having a lot of fun. Be sure to check us out on all the stuff our announcer, Clint, is about to tell you. And we'll see you next time here on the show. Take care. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. 
or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.